Just as we dig into God's word, if you have your Bible, could you take it and turn to Genesis 44? As you're turning there, maybe there have, maybe there's been a time where you've gone to see a movie or you've watched at home and you watch, you're watching mainly because there's a certain actress or actor that you, you really like their acting and the way they interpret a character. And so you're dialed into that. Only right in the middle of the movie to recognize that actually another character is interesting to you. Another character has actually caught your attention. Or maybe you've had an experience like I've had where you go to this world-renowned historic site where everybody says you got to go here and you've seen pictures of it. But as you tour maybe a city, you find like, well, that site was amazing, but actually I kind of like this other site a little bit more. I found that even more interesting and drew me in more. Or maybe you watch uh, a team play because of a certain player, but as you watch the team play, you're actually, your attention's not drawn to this star, this one star that you decided to watch, but actually your attention is drawn to another person because she really hustles or she's unselfish or he's resilient or he's such a team player. And I, I say that because we have been walking through the life of Joseph. That's where our attention has been. It's been concentrated on Joseph. But in Genesis 44, another character really has center stage. And we actually get to observe God's work in another character. And so I'm excited to dig in. We're going to read Genesis 44. Here's the plan for today. We're going to read it and we're going to have to read closely as, uh, and just pay attention to what's being said there. And then after that, I want to make a few observations and then draw a couple, two parallels, all right, that I see in Genesis 44 with some other things going on in scripture. So we're going to read through Genesis 44. And I really wish I had, a, I wish I had the time to go through Genesis 37, 38, we, we don't have the time to back up eight chapters, but if we did, we would detail the story of a father named Jacob, who had a son named Joseph, who was sold by his brothers into slavery, and how God was bringing this family together. And the brothers, in this occasion, need to buy grain in Egypt because of a famine. They've gone down to Egypt and they need their brother Benjamin, their youngest brother, to come with them. We'll dig into all that. But here's where we left off last week. So if you were with us in Genesis 43, we left off with almost like a, a feast. And at that feast, we have 11 brothers. We have nine brothers plus Simeon, who has just been released from custody, and Benjamin, the youngest, the favorite, who is making his first trip down to Egypt because Jacob didn't really want anything to happen to him on the first trip and didn't let him go. And now he lets him go down the second time. They're at a dinner feast and they're, these 11 brothers are at a dinner feast with another man who's the prime minister, but they don't know this is their brother who had been out of their life for 20 years now, two decades. He has an Egyptian name. He has Egyptian authority. He has power. And he's having dinner with his brother. So it's a, a pretty dramatic scene. When you close out chapter 43 of Genesis, all that's left is like for dinner to end, them to get up the next morning, head home with the grain that they bought, go back to their father, and they've kind of wrapped up all that they need in Egypt, or so they think. That's where we left off last week. But let's go to chapter 44. So it says, Then he, which is Joseph, commanded the steward of his house, Fill the men, so he's talking about each of the brothers, the 11 brothers, fill the men's sack with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. 
and put my cup, the silver cup, which had just been at dinner the night before, put that in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, which is Benjamin. Put that with the money for the grain, so the youngest is the favorite, and Joseph is having them through, put through another test. So the steward did, verse, there, verse 2, the end of verse 2, the steward did as Joseph told him. And as soon as the morning was light, the brothers were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, up, get up, follow after the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? I tried to do something good for you, and you in turn have repaid evil. That evil and good comes up again in the story of Joseph. We'll hear those categories. The steward's supposed to say, is it not from this cup that my Lord drinks? By this cup that he practices divination? You've done evil in doing this. You've really messed up this time. How could you? Like, we tried to do something good. And look what you do in return. So when the steward overtook him, he spoke to them these words. And the brothers said to him, like, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. They had to be exasperated. It's like they thought they had just finally gotten out of Egypt with the grain. The brother went down. Every, nothing happened to Benjamin. Like we finally got through this. It's almost like when you feel like it could be a tense encounter going through customs and you finally clear customs and you don't have to worry like you're on the other side and kind of take a deep breath only for someone to yell out and say, hey, there's one more thing. And it's, it's like disorienting to them. Like they thought they had passed. Verse 8, now the accusation. Behold the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks. We brought back to you from the land of Canaan. Like, listen, we, you can accuse us, but we've, we brought back money. How then could we steal silver or gold from the Lord's house? We brought the money back. We're not taking it. So here, whichever of your servants, if you find the cup there, if you find the money, whoever it's found with shall die. And the rest of us will be my Lord's servants. So the steward said, let it be as you say. He who is found with it, though, shall be my servant. The rest of you will be innocent. The stakes are high here. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground. Each man opened his sack. And the steward searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack, the youngest. They tore their clothes. It was the custom of the day to express just deep grief. Every man loaded his donkey and they returned to the city. Verse 14, when Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, Joseph was still there. They be fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you've done? Why, why, what are you trying to get away with? Do you not know that a man like me, I know what's going on. I can indeed practice divination. And Judah said, what can we say? What can we say to my Lord? What shall we speak or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants, which is a very, very interesting way of framing it. God has found out the guilt. What Judah is talking about kind of has a double meaning here. Judah is saying, we, we are guilty. And he is saying, you can see we're guilty here, but we know what's really going on. God is judging us for 20 years ago when we did that thing to our brother. And what he doesn't realize, which is amazing, it's the drama of the story is Joseph knows exactly what he's talking about. He understands the double meaning. He knows who's guilty, who's not guilty, who's guilty of what, when they were guilty of it. Behold, Judah says, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also. 
in whose hand the cup has been found. So Judah, notice what he does. He wants to make this a collective thing. So all of us, like all of us are going down here. We, you've, you've re- declared us guilty. But he said, no, no, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found, only Benjamin will be my servant. The rest of you, you can go in peace to your father. Then Judah went up to him and said, and what follows is, scholars tell you, the longest speech in the book of Genesis, which is significant. So let's listen to Judah. Judah went up and said to him, oh my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ear. So you see all these formalities. Let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself, my Lord. You asked us a question in the past. You, you, you asked, like, have you a father? Do you have a brother? And we said to you, we were honest, we have a father, an old man. We have a young brother, the child of his old age. His, this younger brother of ours, we told you, like, his brother is dead. He alone is left of his mother's children. And he's the favorite. His father loves him. We, we went over this with you, Joseph. Judas swings into action, and he even acknowledges, it's remarkable to me, he acknowledges the favoritism of his dad, doesn't he? I mean, this is what immediately, like back in Genesis 37, this is why the brothers hated Joseph. Now he's acknowledging it. Verse 21, kind of replaying a previous conversation. Then, Judah speaking, then you said to your servants, bring our youngest brother down to me. Bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. So we said to my Lord, the boy, we told you like, the boy can't leave his father for if he should leave his father, his father's gonna die. Then you said, to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. So we went back to our father. We told him your words. And when our father said, go buy some more food, we told him we can't go down because if Benjamin, if Benjamin goes with us, we'll go down. But we can't see your face unless Benjamin is with us. And then our dad said to us, you know that my, my wife bore me two sons. One left me, that's Joseph. And I said, surely he's been torn to pieces and I have never seen him since. If you take Benjamin from me and harm happens to him, basically I'm going to die you, and you're going to be the cause of it. You will bring down my gray hair in evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to our dad, listen, like as soon as I come to our dad and if Benjamin's not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that Benjamin is not with us, he will die and it'll be our fault. Your servants will bring down the gray hair of our dad with sorrow to Sheol. This will kill dad if we go back without Benjamin. For I, Judah says, I became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father saying, if I don't bring him back to you, then I'll bear the blame before you, before my father for all my life. Now, therefore, please, Please let me remain instead, Benjamin, or Judah speaking. Let me remain instead of Benjamin as your servant and let Benjamin go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if Benjamin's not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. I'll stay as a slave. I'll stay permanently. But please, nothing can happen to Benjamin. Dad can't take it. This family doesn't need it. Let me do what I've got to do. You just can't, can't do anything to Benjamin. It's a whole lot to take in. 
But I, I want you to observe something, and I think you can appreciate it pretty much immediately, and that is Judah, this character, has changed. Judah has changed, and you have to appreciate where he's come from to appreciate the change, the kind of person he was. And we get two glimpses into the kind of person he was in Genesis 37 and Genesis 38. And again, we don't have time to review each aspect of that chapter. But the Judah in Genesis 37 is the one actually initiating the suffering of others for his own gain. He's willing for Joseph to suffer. Like, we'll sell him. We'll get money. He can suffer. We'll benefit. He's an opportunist. He's willing to lie to his dad or at least let it mislead his dad so that like the whole Joseph being the favorite is done. This is the Judah in Genesis 37 that we encounter. He also, at the beginning of Genesis 38, he, he takes a Canaanite wife, which in that family, in that tribe, that was out of bounds. You don't do that, but he did. And he, it says he actually left his family. He wants nothing to do with this family, this family of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He wants no part of this family of promise. He takes no responsibility for the family in Genesis 38. The, the custom, despite family customs, he has a daughter-in-law who's been widowed twice and he doesn't take care of her. And it is totally the family responsibility that Judah should take care of her and he doesn't. Oh, he acts like he will, but he doesn't. He's not just a person who made a couple of poor decisions. He is all about preserving his own life, his own comfort, doing things the way he wants to do without any thought of others. As a matter of fact, this daughter-in-law, it's an awful story in Scripture. But because she's not being taken care of the way she should, she puts herself in proximity. She hears that Judah is going to this certain place. And Judah, after his wife dies, is going to that certain place to find a prostitute. She pretends, the daughter-in-law, how, how messed up is this world that Judah's living in, the daughter-in-law, Pretends to be a prostitute. I mean, this is, this is like, and in the end of it, what happens is Judah recognizes, you know what, she acted out of at least the right intentions to try to preserve a family line. She was more righteous in this whole matter than I. That is the Judah that we encounter in Genesis 37 and 38. It's a mess. And Judah seems like such a stranger to God and his grace. But when we read that story, I mean, the verses we just read, that's a different Judah. What's happened over those two decades is that Judah has changed. Instead of being the opportunist, he is actually initiating personal responsibility. Dad, I'll take care of Benjamin. I'll do it. You can hold me responsible. He's moved by the vulnerability of others. So when Benjamin's being threatened, Judah swings into that and says, no, no, he can't be threatened. I will, I will experience the pain. He's willing to suffer with someone. He's willing to suffer for someone. He's willing to create and suggest any kind of scenario that will, will relieve the stress on this. This family, his father, his brother actually mean more to them. They're governing his decisions. Judah has changed. He follows through even on this pledge. It's one thing to make a big like talk big, like, oh, I'll stand in for him. It's another thing when push comes to shove and says, okay, will you? And he does. Judah has changed. And I love this story because what God never does, God never blurs the line between good and evil. 
Actually, people are held accountable for what they do. Judas held accountable for what he's done and the actions and the harm he's created. There's no excusing of what he has done. But at the same time, I want you to hear loud and clear today that God doesn't discard the Judas in Scripture. And he doesn't discard the Judas in 2021. He doesn't write people off because they made this mistake and that mistake and this sin and this went down this path. He, he doesn't do that. I, I love this passage. God brings you to full circle. It's this crisis, crisis moment for the whole family. And there's no excuse. There's no excuses for what Judah's done and who he has been. But that doesn't mean he can't change. How kind of the Lord not to give up on him. How kind of the Lord not to give up on us. Judah's blown it. His father's created an absolute mess for everybody to live in. And God is still at work. This is exactly, this is exactly, church, what God regularly does. It, it almost becomes so familiar. We're not taken aback by, man, this is amazing grace. This is not ordinary. And in this, I want you to see this parallel because I think Judah gives us a taste of what God does in us through the Holy Spirit. Hear that again. Judah just gives us a taste of what God regularly does for people like you and I through the Holy Spirit. He changes us. When God works in this way, you change. You become a new creation. Old things pass away. Things become new. And, and we sometimes have a hard time with that because we feel like, you know, I want to change, Curtis, but I feel absolutely stuck. I don't think I can change. This is how I'm wired. This is who I am. I'm always going to be this person. I'm always going to walk down that road. And yet stories like this say that doesn't have to be the final, final word written over your life. It's not saying it won't be hard or long or require a great deal of patience. But God over two decades has changed a man. Sometimes we have a hard time because we go, you know, Curtis, I've experienced so many difficult things as a victim and, and I realize those things have a lasting impact. They do shape uh, your future. They do shape how you think about things, what, how you respond. Those things do shape, but it, it also doesn't mean like you can't, you can't make progress in God rebuilding and restoring your life. Maybe you say, Curtis, I have deep regrets. And I can't, I can't even begin to think of what forgiveness or freedom would look like. But Judah reminds us God redeems and he changes. And he doesn't do so in such a way like he like, gets tired of doing this. Actually, it says that there is more joy in heaven over a sinner that repents. Like this, God enjoys doing this kind of work. So this is a, we're a collection of these kinds of stories. Where God intervened, God worked, God changed people. God is changing people. It's amazing. More and more, that's good news that shouldn't be taken for granted. More and more, there are a certain list, and we're beginning to see those, there's certain lists of things in this culture, in our day and time, that if you do this, or if you say this, if you got, get caught with a screenshot of this, or if you get caught on a hot mic saying that, you will be like permanently, permanently have to bear what you did. You will never escape it. You will never be forgiven. 
you'll just have to feel the weight of doing something stupid. And maybe you do it as a very, like a very young person. Maybe you're older. Maybe it was, you weren't thinking. Maybe something got misconstrued. But what it, it's like no excuses. There's no forgiveness. There's no lifeline. There's no pathway of restoration. And frankly, to live in that kind of world, which we're living in today, is it can be terrifying. Like, I don't want to say something that's going to get like, brought up again and again and again and again and again for the rest of my life. I don't want my foolish activity to be brought up. Like, who of us wants that to come up decades later? But I want you to notice how different that story that the world is telling us. Like, you can't be forgiven. You can't cover. You can't move on. This is who you are. I want you to see how different a story God tells us. He doesn't excuse wrong, but he forgives, and he forgives, and he forgives, and he changes, and he renews, and he breathes back life into us. I, I want you to be filled with hope, which may make you like, instead of running from God, running to him, because his mercy is more. Our sins, they're many. His mercy is more. That's why you'd want to be a part of a group of believers that actually can be transparent with each other. That's why we want to build this church as a community of grace where there are people, all kinds of people, just like Judah, who would never want like their worst moments broadcast for everybody else. But God saw exactly where they were and God began to work a change and slowly over time or maybe instantaneously something happened and you're not who you were. You're not who you were. Shouldn't we want to be that community that shows grace? And shouldn't we not just want to be that community but I mean we go to halls and we go to school and we go to, go to work and we go to neighborhoods and we got family situations. Shouldn't we be the people who can walk into situations and show grace instead of holding grudges? because we've been shown this amazing grace. Shouldn't we be the ones who have hope that that person right now who messed it up, messed things up, shouldn't we be the people who actually move toward that person going, I don't think your final, final story's written here. Shouldn't we be that kind of person infusing life and grace into the world because we know what that grace is like. I love this because Judah gives us just a taste of what God does again and again and again through the Holy Spirit, he changes us. But as you read the story, something else grabs my attention, and that is not just that Judah changes, but also Judah offers his life as a substitute. I think that's core at chapter 44. Totally on a human level, you cannot, like, you just have to appreciate the courage of Judah. Willing to go, Benjamin has to be able to go back to dad. I'll take the punishment, whatever it is. On a human level, pledging his life his, his freedom, his future, so that another person goes free. We love that picture. Like, I, I don't know, I just think God wired us to love a picture of a substitute, someone offering themselves. I read a war story, and I read of a, an individual taking something for, like, the whole company. And we say, that, that is such a picture of sacrifice. That's such a good picture. I I've read accounts of September 11th and especially the first responders, but you read of people that were going up the stairs when everybody else was going down and they were going to retrieve people. And it's like, I mean, you're reading the book and like tears are coming down your eyes because someone said, I'll be the substitute. I will sacrifice just so they're okay. Like we love that story. We know it's good. We know it's right. We know it is like one of the most beautiful stories that could be written. And in this story where Judah 
offers his life as a substitute, he is giving us a taste. He's giving us a taste of what God did for us in Jesus. He's giving us a taste of what God did for us in Jesus. You can't help but see the comparison of us. I mean, it's no accident that Judah will be an ancestor of Jesus the Messiah. What do I mean he's giving us a taste? Because Judah takes on the weight of the family, like the family of Jacob, the family of his dad. He takes on the weight as he becomes the representative. He's willing to bear the guilt for his family. But Jesus doesn't just take on the weight of a family. He takes on the weight of the world, the entire world. He takes on the debt of all of our sin, all of our rebellion, all of our, all of our mistakes, all of our sins. You see the comparison that Judah gives us a taste, but we even... Like, we get the full picture of reality. And even Judah, like, someone said this about Judah, Judah's amazing integrity and self-sacrifice mend what had seemed hopelessly broken. So Judah, because of his sacrifice and his integrity, mend what's been broken. I think if Judah did that for a family, Jesus did that. But remember, Judah, I mean, had failings in the past. Jesus had none of that. He was innocent. And yet he, with his self-sacrifice, his integrity, is not only willing to lay down his life. Judah is willing. But Jesus actually gives his life. It's not by accident. Just hours before Jesus goes to the cross, Jesus will say, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. I wonder if that word friend just kept going through Peter and John and James and Thomas. Like He laid down his life for his friends. No one took it from him. Jesus said that in John 10. Nobody takes it from me. I lay it down. He says in Mark 10, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Judah gives you a taste, just a taste of what God has done for us in Jesus. And and I hope you can appreciate how that just changes things. How that is meant to change things for you. How that has changed things for us. How that changes everything we look at, everything we love, everything we live for. I, I, I hope you can appreciate because of what Jesus has done, like that's why we make a big deal of coming to terms with that turning from everything else, trusting in Jesus. Because the only reason that you can experience a change, a new start, a fresh start, the only reason you can experience this change that God does in us through the work of the Spirit is because of what God has done for us in the work of Jesus on the cross. We believe it's personal to Jesus. Your response to him is personal. So it's not just a religion we're trying to prop up and hold up here. It's personal. So when Jesus said that God loved the world in this way, that he sent me, Jesus spoke those words. His one and only son, that whoever believes in Jesus wouldn't perish but have eternal life. Like that's very personal to him. What you do with that, how you respond to that, how that drives your heart, how that forms your life, how that changes you. The story of Joseph is so amazing. And I have to say the story of Judah catches us a little by surprise. But this is not just a story you admire from a distance. I don't just want you to be impressed with Genesis 44 and the amazing storytelling that happens. 
I, I'm glad for you to be impressed by that. It's an amazing piece of scripture. It's a beautiful story. I don't want you just to admire from a distance. This is one actually, no, you can live in that story. You can experience it. I want you to experience it firsthand because God is just as real now, writing these same kinds of stories of grace and redemption and change and hope. And he's writing it all over this congregation. If you think he can't, you just, don't, you just haven't heard enough of the stories. You haven't heard where people came from. You haven't heard the family backgrounds enough. And maybe if you heard like two or three more stories, or maybe if you talked with a Christian friend, maybe if you've really understood it, you would, you would recognize we say, if God could change the direction of our lives, then surely he could meet you this morning, wherever you are. If you haven't found rest yet, I'm guessing some of you haven't. You've not found rest in what Jesus has done for you. Today could be the day that changes that. You could call out to him, put your trust in him, ask him to save you, ask him to rescue you, ask him to change you. And he's not going to stay distant there. He's going to move towards you. And if that change has happened to you, like why not go public with that? Lord willing, we're going to baptize here in a few weeks. Why not, why not tell people, like, this is what's happened to me? That's exactly what baptism is saying. And if that change is central to your life, then, then like, it's no wonder that we would gather weekly and sing about it. Sing about Jesus going to the cross. Sing about Jesus rising from the dead. It's no wonder we would just remind ourselves, that story, whatever other story this world is telling, that story is the one that matters to me. And it's no wonder that in just a moment we would take time to sing, what can wash away my sin? And we would say, nothing, nothing but the blood of Jesus. What could make me whole where everything's broken? What could make me whole again? Absolutely nothing but the work of Jesus. And we would once again remind ourselves like we do Sunday after Sunday, that Jesus' work is a center piece of our lives. Can I pray for us? Oh Lord, help us to not just hear the story and be impressed with some of the characters, but drive the truth of what you've done for us in Jesus into our lives. So I pray that Judah in this story that happened oh, thousands of years ago, that that story will give us the taste we need to taste and see that you are good, and the ones who find refuge in you are blessed. So we have no other hope, no other way of saving ourselves, no other path where we can promise to change and really mean it this time. We have none of that to offer you. We do offer you our sins. and We do offer you our trust, our complete confidence, our complete trust that you are the only thing, the only one that can take away our sin. So here Hear our worship today, Lord, as we celebrate what you have done for us that we never could have done for ourselves. Thank you, Lord, for meeting with us today. We ask our requests in Jesus' name.